Hello and welcome to another episode of the Like a New Day podcast. My name is Zachary Brannigan and I will be your host. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about all things uh, like a camera, but uh, we focus heavily on uh, techniques and creativity in photography and uh, usually throw in a couple of oddballs in there as well. Um, this episode is going to be maybe a little bit different. Uh, this is going to be something where I try to not do quite as much editing because uh, I've gotten some good feedback on the podcast, but the way that I've been editing it uh, has been taking out every single you know and like, and uh, that is, like many of us, that is a habit that I am really trying to break, especially as I want to record podcasts. Um, going through and doing that post-processing, even of a half an hour episode for me, takes a very long time. And as you might know uh, from previous episodes, I'm the executive director of a small uh, environmental nonprofit here in Michigan. And uh, that is taking up all of my time at the moment, uh, especially as we try to cruise through the pandemic and uh, keep things going. So I hope that this uh, episode finds you well and coping. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Um, so if you've listened to previous episodes, you know that I like to break it up into three sections, creativity, technique, and then uh, technical, uh, you know, like a issues, cameras. Uh, we're talking about hardware. So today I wanted to kind of hit on, uh, for the creativity side of it, I want to talk about uh, photography and depression, um, relying on photography uh, to kind of get you through the low times. And um, what kind of a salve is that? Does it work? Does it not? Uh, what are your experiences? So uh, everyday photography and, uh, you know, the catharsis of photography. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, the second section, uh, when we're talking about the photo photographic technique section, I want to talk about filters. So um, it's funny because uh, some photographers get criticized for heavy post-processing. However, you know, post-processing, even when we were developing black and white film in tubs uh, 100 years ago, uh, that is something that some of the great photographers have done heavily. If you've ever seen, you know, the famous example are the, the Ansel Adams photos that are all marked up from all of his post-processing as he developed. Now, that obviously was an entirely different technique and an, an entire art form in and of itself, burning and dodging and whatnot. However, uh, Photoshop is as well. I mean, there are guys out there that can take, uh, guys, men and women, that can take uh, Photoshop and make something out of nothing. And uh, there's a lot of examples of that online, but is that cheating? Is it not? I don't know. Um, but we're going to talk about physical filters, actually, like Lee filters and uh, screw-on filters and that and how they affect your photography and how I use them. Um, I have a, fee, uh, a Lee filter system, a 100 universal holder, and uh, I've got neutral density graduated filters, and I use those in some of my landscape photography, but not the way you might think. I've actually found that the only way I like to use them is in a way that they really weren't intended, and I'll get into that in the in the section uh, about filters in our, our, our uh, technique section. Uh, and in terms of hardware, I decided today to talk about the Leica SL2. Uh, there was a recent firmware update to get a 187 megapixel multi-shot uh, file uh, out, of, out of that camera, and uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, you know, of course, there are uh, a lot of competitors for the Leica SL2 out there, including its sort of technical double, which is going to be the Panasonic uh, system, the Panasonic full frame system. And um, of course, there are uh, Nikons and Canons, and uh, obviously the Sony is the big uh, example probably of, of mirrorless full frame out there. And um, I've got experience with some of those as well. So I'm going to do a little compare and contrast, and we're going to talk about Leica in the mirrorless interchangeable lens uh, universe. So without further ado, let's get started. 
So for our creativity section today, I wanted to talk a little bit about photography and depression. Maybe not true depression, but the low moments, uh, or possibly true depression, to be fair. Um, you know, full disclosure, it's something that I've struggled with on and off for, uh, for a lot of my adult life. And um, I find that being an artist and being creative uh, is something that, that brings a smile to my face and actually creates some of the most rewarding experiences of my life in terms of travel and in terms of putting something out in the world that I can be proud of uh, and, and, and validation, too. I'm going to hit on a couple of those things. Um, I would barely be interested to hear from you uh, if, if you have sort of used photography as a way to, to get through tough times. Um, especially now, I think a lot of people are really suffering from, uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of worry, a little bit of anxiety. It's, it's hard to be optimistic at this time, at least in my opinion, you know, that being said, you know, I, I have a wonderful family. I have a wonderful set of parents and I, I, my, my son and my, my wife and my dogs, you know, my, my coworkers at work. Uh, we have a great series of relationships in my life, and I, I am I'm very privileged and very very um, grateful and blessed for for my position in life. That being said, you know if you if you suffer from you know the kind of uh, either seasonal depression, a seasonal affective disorder, or you know maybe you suffer from from true depression, or maybe something even more serious. Maybe even it's just uh, you know an overall sense of melancholy that you you can't quite shake. Those are physiological things, but little spikes of optimism in your life can actually bring about positive chemical reactions in your body that can bring a smile to your face. I, I really believe that. And in my experience, you know, getting out to take photographs sometimes, especially when I have uh, a really interesting subject in front of me, um, sometimes when I'm really sort of deep into that melancholy, I can, I can really shake myself out of it because photography requires so much concentration. It requires an artistic eye. It requires technical acumen. It requires physical endurance in many cases. Um, I remember when I went to New York in January, uh, I was there for a couple of weeks for my class. And as I wandered around the streets of New York, I sort of found myself wanting to embrace that melancholy and not feel bad about it. And I was able to kind of escape into my own character of, you know, walking the streets and taking photos. And um, I'm very, very proud of the work that I created when I was there. But sometimes it can actually backfire on you because, you know, I don't know about you, but occasionally from time to time, I, um, I sort of struggle with disappointment when I don't get any keepers. Uh, I've gotten over that. Uh, you know, nowadays I, I take photos all the time, like uh, like all day long. I've always got a camera with me. I'm always taking pictures. I've got thousands of photos of my family and my dogs and everyday things like that. Um, not every photo is going to be a wall hanger, and that is totally okay. Sometimes for me personally, just the the act of, of pulling down the shutter button and hearing the snap uh, and, and holding the camera, you know, this is what actually attracted me to Leica cameras in the first place, other than their reputation for durability and, and high image quality and all the things that we love Leica cameras for. There is undeniably that intangible uh, with Leicas, which is that that cool brass or magnesium, that, that, that metal in your hand, that weight to them. Uh, and of course, the user experience is what we all love about Leica cameras, which is their, their very traditional manual approach, um, the, the sound or, or lack of sound uh, with their, their incredible shutter systems, the detents, the clicks on those little lenses, you know, on my Q2, I just love changing the aperture and hearing that, 
as you're <laughs> as you're figuring it out. It's incredible. Uh, it, it it is there is that sort of tactile reward for actually just getting out and using the camera and enjoying it. It, it you'll hear people all the time, you know, compare like a camera to a Swiss watch, and I've used this this as well. Uh, a Casio is is arguably going to take just as good readings of time as anything and uh your your very expensive watch is not actually going to do any better at keeping time in most cases um that being said the feeling in your hand of that watch in the morning the, the appreciation of its artfulness and its its beauty and uh the, just just hearing those little clicks and noises and whirs and maybe admiring the ca- open case back on a on a glass case back swiss watch um, that's a very neat and interesting and positive experience. It's a luxury experience, and obviously Leica's are a luxury product. Um, I'm going to talk in future episodes about using a luxury product for down-market work, <laughs> and um, and that's going to be an interesting conversation. But I find that the the size of Leica's, the power of it, uh, everything that you can do with it, especially in my case with my Q2, makes it a wonderful everyday camera. Now it's overkill. You're putting a tack in the wall with a sledgehammer in a lot of cases. If you're taking a snapshot of a butterfly on a, a flower in front of your house, you know, you're pulling out a $5,000 camera, um, which is incredible. You can use your iPhone, which is an expensive camera, by the way. You know, iPhones are not cheap, um, but you could use a used uh, Fuji X100 uh, S or something and probably take a great photo as well. However, the experience of using that camera, even if uh, your your images are not going to ever be bound for the wall, or maybe you never share them on social media, maybe they just go into your Lightroom, uh, maybe you just delete them, maybe you never look at them again. Sometimes I just enjoy getting out and taking photographs uh, as a catharsis. It's just a photo- photography for fun. I used to get depressed uh, when I didn't have any keepers. Now I don't. If I go out specifically to take photographs of something important and I don't like any of my photos and I don't have many keepers, then sometimes I might kind of scold myself a little and say, geez, man, wake up. You got to take better pictures. You know, that was an opportunity missed. But I am proud to report that I feel pretty good about the fact that when there is a photograph to be taken, that is an important photograph to be taken, I do have sort of a professional mindset that I can click on and really push everything else out. So when I get to an opportunity to take photos that I think are going to be memorable. Um, I'll give you an example, and I'm sure that I've talked about this on a previous episode, but going for a walk late at night in Manhattan, uh, there was a huge fire in Chinatown uh, in this cultural center building right next to a park, uh, and just I kind of stumbled on it. I mean, you could you could see the commotion. We Actually, I was with a friend, and we were walking along, and you could see all of these fire trucks going uh, into Chinatown, and so we just kind of followed it and thought, well, there's something big going on here. I mean, it was a lot of fire trucks. Sure enough, there's this very large building on a corner, and it's surrounded by many, many hundreds of people and fire trucks from you know divisions all over Lower Manhattan trying to fight this fire. And the light was <laughs> incredible. Actually, the only the, the all the sirens and the the lights on the fire trucks and the the fire itself, and then of course just the the neon and and the lights of Chinatown. Um, made for just a photographer's paradise. <laughs> that being said, there's this kind of very negative and sad thing going on, and and there were a couple of people hurt, and this very important building was was destroyed essentially. But uh, in terms of documenting it, in all the commotion with everything going on, I found myself kind of in a zone, and I had really been working through some things that week, and that gave me an incredible bump of optimism and an incredible bump of self assuredness in my in my ability 
And uh, I took some photographs there that I'm extremely proud of and I'm, I'm very happy to have taken. In fact, one of which is, is printed on a big hunk of metal and it's hanging on the wall in my, my home office. So I'm really proud of, of the ability to do that, that I, that I believe that I have. But I've, it's taken me a long, long time to get there. So I don't know. I just think that, that having your camera with you all the time and taking pictures and even just deleting them and discarding them as you go is, is just fine. These cameras are designed to be used. Uh, they're designed to be durable. They're designed to be with you. So maybe this was a little ramshackle discussion of photography and depression, but I do often suffer from uh, being predisposed to melancholy. And if I have my camera with me and I take pictures that day, a lot of times it just makes me happier. Um, so, you know, there's no silver bullet there, but I guess my, I guess my lesson is, is that if you like to take pictures and it makes you happy and you're kind of bummed, go ahead and take some pictures and make yourself happy. And don't worry about the outcome. Just chuck them at the end of the day. Just take the pictures for the sake of taking the pictures. And honestly, the more that you do that, in my opinion, the more able you will be to, to take the big pictures, the good pictures, the important pictures when, when you're called upon to do so. Uh, you'll be able to respond. That muscle memory, that that ability to just execute when you need to execute, it will be there for you when you need it to be with practice. And um, you know, I, I think that that uh, depression, and I think that, that that melancholy, I think that all those things are very, very real, and they're very, very serious. Uh, and and I think that it is totally okay to rely on the things that we love to to try to you know, help ourselves get through those tough times. And I know that I've, I've especially been reliant on that over these past few months. And, and I think uh, personally that I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, um, I hope that you're doing okay. Uh, I would love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to, um, you know, please send me your stories. Uh, I would love to hear what's going on with you. We're, we're, we're doing a little bit better here with listeners, uh, which is kind of amazing. We've got over a thousand listeners now and, um, you know, we just started this not that long ago. So uh, if you, if you would like to share uh, your story with me, I have gotten emails from, from several dozen of you in the last few weeks. And I really, really enjoy that. Uh, speaking of catharsis. So, uh, please go to my website, uh, or just Google me, but uh, my email is zgbrannigan at gmail.com. I will put a link to my website with my contact information uh, in the description of this episode. So please take a look at my portfolio. If you have commentary on any of those things, I would love to hear you uh, about that. But I'd love to hear your own stories about mental health and photography. And uh, maybe we could put a little finer point on this and talk about it more frequently in the future. Because I think that it's uh, I think that it's important. I think that being artists and being photographers is something that defines us as people when we when we dive as deep uh, as I think most Leica shooters are. I, I would be very interested to hear from you. So, so feel free. Cool. Let's move on to the next section. Filters. Are they rose colored glasses? Are they necessary? Um, I have heard a lot of different takes on filters. So uh, one of the YouTubers that I follow is a guy named Hudson Henry. He's a Nikon photographer, uh, landscape photographer, and a photo educator based, I believe, in uh, Oregon. And uh, Hudson has a video that says, ditch your filters. And the reason is, is that he does it all in post. He's an on one photo raw ambassador and uh, a very um, talented uh, Photoshop and uh, Lightroom user. And he basically just says that you know, using filters is kind of a thing of the past because, uh, especially if you start thinking about new graduated neutral density filters, which is primarily what I'm going to talk about. And if you're not familiar with graduated neutral density filters, they are uh, like sunglasses for your camera, but only on the top, and then they fade into clear. So if you're looking at a horizon line and the sky is much brighter than the ground, 
you can apply this filter and it will even out your exposure a little bit so you can protect your highlights and you can make sure you get enough exposure to bring out those shadows. So it's kind of like an analog uh, HDR technique. Um, if you have never used a filter, uh, that's okay. You know, honestly, a lot of the filters that uh, like that, those more advanced filters, neutral density filters, graduated neutral density filters come from filmmaking and they come from film photography. And, and certainly uh, Hudson Henry does have a point uh, that you can do a lot of that in post nowadays. However, I like using filters for landscape photography and I'm going to get into that for a se- uh, in a second. Nobody really calls using filters cheating. Uh, you know, people use polarizing filters all the time for glare on the water. Uh, people use red filters on black and white film to get more contrast. It's not it's not cheating. You know that that's just fine, especially when you use it in the process of capturing the the actual image. I, I honestly, my personal opinion is that none of it is cheating. Photoshop is not cheating, unless you're trying to do something like you're going to try to um, you know put some fake news out there. Or you're going to say like, for instance, let's change the messages on some protesters' signage with Photoshop. Uh, we've seen that happen. Um, you're going to Photoshop a mask onto somebody that wasn't wearing a mask during the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, you know, these are, are changing the reality of the photograph, and that's, that's not appropriate at all. However, when we start talking about, uh, let's say, exposure, when we start talking about contrast, these are things that we adjust all the time in Photoshop, and they're fine. Saturation boosting. You know, people will often say that what they're trying to do is to manipulate the photo in such a way that it looks like what they had in their mind when they took the picture. Now, naturally, the most sophisticated cameras in the world can't capture exactly what your eye sees. I think that Leicas get pretty close. Um, I think that a lot of great cameras get pretty close. Uh, that being said, the way that our, the sensors on our cameras and our lenses and the equipment that you have sort of process light and, and put that down into a two-dimensional media is, is never going to be the same as the three-dimensional world that we live in. So, we're artists uh, as photographers, and it's our job to express ourselves in such a way. So I think that post-processing especially uh, gives us the ability to do that and manipulating all of our settings. I mean, you're, you're manipulating reality when you manipulate your aperture, for instance. So, you know, wide open aperture, you're going to be blurring out your background. You shut down that aperture, you're going to be getting more stuff uh, in focus. These are effects. These are things we're trying to do. There's absolutely, of course, nothing wrong with any of that. But filters are sometimes, you know, nowadays, I guess filters are a little bit, a little bit analog for a lot of people, maybe a little bit uh, of a Luddite if you still use filters, but I love filters. I've got a Lee 100 holder that I can put on the front of my camera and I use new graduated neutral density filters. Now, what I, what I actually like to do is uh, turn them upside down. So this is a weird way to use them, but like I recently took a bunch of pictures in the forest. And if you follow me on Instagram, which uh, ZG Brannigan, uh, all one word, Z-G-B-R-A-N-I-G-A-N, or you can follow the link in the in the description of this episode to go to my website uh, and find it there. But I, I took a bunch of photos for work uh, at a nature preserve that we manage, and I was in the forest, and there was this kind of neat, warm light coming in through the trees. And rather than even out the exposure and actually try to dull that light upstairs uh, with the the light down at my feet so that I had a little more even exposure. I did the opposite. I decided, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to create like an extreme um, 
not vignette, I guess, but from the bottom, I wanted to actually darken the forest floor and accentuate that incredible light coming in through the trees in a lot of cases. And uh, I got a really interesting effect. I mean, I did take some conventional ones where I put the graduated neutral density filter the way it's supposed to with the dark part on the top and the light part on the bottom uh, and evened out my exposure. So for instance, some shoreline shots where I had a really bright sky and a beachy area uh, and wanted that photograph to be more uh, just more evenly exposed, a little more contrast in the clouds, things like that. Now you can tell a filter was used on that photo and that's fine. I, I, I think it's totally fine, but using it very unconventionally and sticking it upside down, I thought was kind of, um, it was sort of a weird last minute thing because if you've ever used a leaf filter holder, you'll know that it, uh, it screws on. And then the, the little adapter clips into this bracket where you can put these large rectangular, uh, 100 millimeter plates in there that are your actual filters and they're made out of like a slightly flexible very high quality polycarbonate of some kind and you can rotate that filter so the the real objective of that is like if you're taking a photograph of a, a mountainside uh, and you need to adjust your horizon line with that neutral density filter that graduated uh, nd filter you can do that but I don't know. I just got kind of wacky. I was getting a little bored and I thought I'm going to turn this around and see what it looks like. And it actually was really neat. There was just enough light spilling on the forest floor and then I was able to really darken up the foreground and um, it just had this kind of neat effect and I really liked it. So um, you could do that same thing in post, but it, I don't know, it might not have the same sort of authenticity and the same sort of feeling. If you were to just put in a filter tool and put a, a, a graduation down there and reduce exposure uh, in that foreground, it might, I guess it would kind of look the same, but it might, it might look more digital. It might just look more processed. I think that it's definitely a more organic feel when you capture it in camera with a lot of things. And I would challenge you to try to do the same thing with film photography. Uh, it's, it's a really cool technique to use with film photography is to use uh, graduated neutral density filters and maybe even try to use them unconventionally. You know, naturally a, a camera like the, uh, the Leica Q2, which is essentially a fixed mirrorless camera, so it gives you the ability to see your exposure in a live view uh, window. This would be harder to do with uh, your Leica M cameras, for instance, because you're looking through your rangefinder. You might have to use live view to kind of see what you're doing there. Not all the M uh, digital cameras have live view, of course, but I don't know. Give that a try. Uh, filters are not cheap these days. I think it's probably a product of two things. One is they're probably expensive to make at a real high level of quality. And the other thing is that uh, it might be an economy of scale because I'm not sure how many people are using those filters anymore. I, I don't really know. Screw-on filters are a whole different thing. I would say, especially with uh, conventional screw-on neutral density filters, especially for filmmaking or long exposures, I mean, who amongst us has not used a neutral density filter to take five stops of light uh, so that we can do a waterfall picture? I mean, that's like that's like uh, the third class of, you know, your, your beginner photography class. And it blows your mind that you can uh, get a long exposure in the middle of the day like that. This is the first thing you do after you understand the exposure triangle is try to manipulate the amount of light coming into that lens uh, at a, at an aperture that suits you. But uh, in filmmaking, they use them all the time. And in fact, you have those uh, variable neutral density filters, which can get extremely expensive. I have a set of 82 millimeter, the Polar Pro, Peter McKinnon variable neutral density filters for filmmaking for work, and they were super expensive. I want to say it was like $450 for these two filters. Um, that being said, they're pretty amazing because one goes from two stops to five stops. The other one goes from six to 10 stops. Uh, when you just turn it, it gets darker and there's no artifacts. It doesn't screw up the image at all. It's just, it is extremely neutral. It's basically a pair of very high quality sunglasses for the front of your lens. And then you can vary the tint. 
So if you haven't used a variable neutral density filter for filmmaking, or honestly, for still photography, I don't know, give that a try uh, if you if you have the means. You just don't see people using filters on Leica cameras all that much. Uh, when you want to use one on the Q, it's weird because the uh, the Q2, when you unscrew the lens hood, you know, I think it's a 49 millimeter filter. So it's just a tiny little uh, opening element there. So to put on an 82 millimeter filter on there, you need one of those big flange adapters. And it really starts to look weird. It looks like a plumbing fitting instead of a camera in your hand. At any rate, uh, filters, filters can be pretty interesting. There's a lot of neat things you can do with them. Um, obviously, when you are shooting in uh, black and white, you can do this on a monochrome camera, by the way. You can use, if you have a M10 monochrome or one of the other earlier monochrome cameras, even though it's digital, you can use a red filter uh, on there and increase your contrast. You can also manipulate the amount of contrast that you're building into your uh, files, you know, in, in digital posts. So maybe it's not that necessary. I know that you're, you're capturing a black and white DNG file on the M10 monochrome, which is one of the coolest things ever, but I digress. So, um, you know, potentially think about it. Uh, Lee system is a few hundred dollars. Uh, if you are a landscape photographer, I still think that there is a very important place for, uh, for Lee type, those rectangular filters. And uh, you know, landscape photographers, if you're a landscape photographer, you're probably gonna say, yeah, no duh, dude. And like, we've been using them forever and we're never going to stop using them. And, the YouTubers that say you shouldn't be using them are crazy because you know nothing is more important than capturing an accurate exposure in camera. Uh, Thomas Heaton, on the other end, uh, maybe some of you have seen a Thomas Heaton video. He's a, a very popular landscape photography YouTuber from the United Kingdom. He uses filters like in every image, basically. He's always got filters, uh, and he uses a Lee 100 system, uh, similar to what I have. Uh, but he's got all kinds of uh, filters there. Another film photographer that I know uses filters extensively is uh, Nick Carver. Uh, you can find Nick Carver's videos on YouTube. And Nick, uh, he takes um, photos where a lot of times because he has uh, a lot of vignetting on the, he uses a big uh, field cameras, you know, so he's using uh, large format film or he's using, um, you know, he's got a 16 by nine Shenhao, I think is the name of that camera, uh, which uses 120 film. Um, but uh, Ben Horn is another uh, large format film photographer on YouTube. A lot of these guys, they use uh, sort of these central graduated neutral density filters. So it's a round filter that goes on the front and it's dark in the middle and it's light on the outsides. And that's because the lens is vignette so badly with those larger formats that this corrects for vignetting. So they're darker on the outside. So you could have a couple of stops exposure difference from the edges of the picture uh, to the center where it would be much brighter with these lenses. So he uses a filter that's dark in the middle that actually darkens that down and it actually evens out the exposure, which I was blown away by when I first saw that. These guys that can do that and do it all with film photography, that's crazy. That's like, that's, that's pretty advanced stuff. So uh, right on guys. Um, anyway, yeah, try out filters and, uh, filters are not cheating. Uh, you know, boy, when you, when you throw a filter on there, you know, that's, that's some analog old school stuff and, uh, it, to get the photos that you really like and use filters to do it is a pretty cool photographic technique. So give filters a try. If you haven't, you know, take a step back, grab a filter and uh, get some images, see what you come up with. Uh, show me your stuff. Uh, send me an email. Uh, please send me a link to your Instagram. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to follow, uh, followers instagram accounts uh, so that i could have a little bit more context and maybe talk about some of your photography on future episodes so please reach out uh over my uh, over my website and uh send me your instagram handle if you got one and uh, we'll see see what uh you guys can do with uh, with filters okay all right sounds good
So like many Leica cameras, the SL2 is a fixture in my imagination. Uh, I I spend a lot of time convincing myself that I don't need things. I, I've been very, very conscious, especially over the last year or so, with reducing the amount of objects that I own and trying to improve the quality of the objects that I retain. So I would never call myself a minimalist, but I certainly love some of those minimalist or essentialist uh um, you know, mentalities that, that you hear people talk about. The concept to me of having, not accumulating a lot of things and just having a few really good things is one of the things that led me to own a Leica in the first place. Uh, I have never, for a single second, uh, since I've owned my Q2 about a year now, I have never for one second thought about selling it. And I can't say that about any other piece of photographic equipment I've ever had. I've never had a connection with a piece of photographic equipment like I do with this particular camera. And it's not just that overwhelming threshold uh, cost-wise to acquire it. It's the fact that I have bonded with it. I, I understand it. I can operate it in with my eyes closed. Um, I, can, I can really connect with it. I know what I'm going to get uh, with the settings and the techniques that I use with that camera. And I, I love the way that it looks. I love the way that the, the files look and the, the images look that come out of it. So um, I have never thought about it. And I have been, um, and anybody will tell you this that knows me, that in many other facets of my life, I am a gearaholic. I tend to go through cars and change cars frequently. I tend to uh, become dissatisfied with photo backpacks and things like that. So, the, but the problem is, is that I never really get what I want. I, I never actually, I, I make too many compromises when I buy stuff and I find myself um, not getting what I'm actually hoping for. And I'll convince myself otherwise. So for instance, I wanted a Q2 so bad. Well, a Q at the time, I wanted to like a Q so bad. There's no way I could justify the cost or even afford it. So I got a Fujifilm X100, which a lot of people call the poor man's Leica. That's a great camera. Um, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed it. But once I had the opportunity to get a Q2, the X100 uh, F was out the door. I just, I had no use for that camera anymore. It was just a tool. Um, and the, the Q2 obviously takes its place. Um, if you have a Q2, you're going to use that if you had both of those cameras, in my opinion. Unless, of course, you were worried about damaging your Q2 or, or, or losing it because of its cost. But to me, these cameras are meant to be used. Just be careful with it. Uh, get a good bag and and keep it safe. But let's talk about the Leica SL2 because I shoot for work. I shoot a Nikon Z6. So I've got the Nikon Z system. I've got a series of the new uh, S-line lenses, which I think is a really stupid naming convention. You have uh, the Z mount cameras and instead of the lenses being called Z lenses, they're S lenses. I'm, I'm not sure why uh, they're doing that, but I digress. The, uh, the lenses are great. The camera is great in terms of, you know, just professional execution, accurate rendition, ease of use, all of those things. But I don't get up, you know, out of bed in the morning and say, man, I can't wait to take pictures with my Nikon Z6. I just don't uh, do that. The The only time I get close to that, I would say, is I do have uh, that FTZ adapter and I have a 200 to 500 millimeter uh, f5.6 for wildlife photography. And it's not even the camera that gets me excited, but getting a good wildlife photo is pretty exciting. Uh, if you've never done it, you've never had an opportunity to shoot at 500 millimeters with a full frame camera, I highly recommend it. It's it's a lot of fun when you take pictures and and you you capture nature up close like that, and you can you can witness it through through a camera lens and in a, in a photograph that you took yourself is is a pretty rewarding experience. Kind of goes back to that um, that little dose of chemicals in there that are going to bring a smile to your face that we talked about in the first uh, first chapter of today's podcast. So I have an interchangeable 
rechargeable lens mirrorless camera that takes a about a 25 megapixel image and they do make the Z7 which I could acquire uh, and take almost a 50 megapixel image 47 megapixels or whatever you know they would be good photos they would be fine and that system I think that the Z7 cost just under three grand and um, you'd be talking about uh, $2,000 for instance for I think it's $2,500 or so for their 70 to 200 not 7200 the uh, 24 to 70 f2.8 the equivalent to that would be in leica terms you would be having uh, you'd be getting a leica sl2 and you would be getting the uh, 24 to 90 which is a 28 to f4 i believe so it's variable aperture at that but only at that high end uh, you know you get a little bit more reach with a 24 to 90 versus a 24 to 70 uh, and uh, but it does have a variable aperture near the end there now f4 on a mirrorless camera of this quality with 47 megapixels is no big deal like you're going to get great images at f4 and that camera has ibis image uh, in-body image stabilization etc so why why would i obsess over the like sl2 why would i want to buy it well it's pretty incredible you know it has all those same attributes that we love about like cameras it's uh the the quality of construction the, um it's waterproof it's it's got all of those things that you need it takes incredible photos it has the same sensor as the q2 so i love the fact that if i had that camera i'd be able to you know have sort of these family images that look like they go together and one thing that i really like though I, that i want to talk about is that like it does not seem to hold too many things back they uh unlike canon and unlike nikon those companies come out with cameras frequently. So every six months to a year, a new model is being released or you, these incremental models like an S model. And Leica has done this in the past. So, um, you know, particularly with their, their medium format cameras uh, or with M cameras when they kind of got away from the current naming convention and they had the type 240 and 262 and all that stuff. Uh, and you could even argue that the P models are an incremental update. So you have an M10 and then you get you know, a year later, you get an M10P, which has just got a few little upgraded features, but the same sensor. Uh, it's quieter, etc. Like it's all black, like all the P models are stealthy. Um, also, by the way, where's the Q2P? Uh, we need that. Anyway, actually, I hope they don't come out with it because then I'm going to say, boy, I really want that. And um, I don't need it. Uh, but the one thing that Leica tends to do is let their models um, exist for a long time. So the shelf life of a Leica camera is pretty incredible. So the SL came out like five years ago, and the 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 SL was a very good camera, solid camera, 25 megapixels, uh, had a lot of great features, but it was a little too Bauhaus for some. It's big, it's blocky. If you've ever held one, it, it does feel kind of like a, a slab of wood. It's, it's, it's pretty intense and a decent screen on the back, and it takes great images, especially because the lenses, the SL lenses are so good. They're big, but they're really good. And they're big because they have to be, you know, I mean, if you kind of understand the physics of, of camera lenses, they have to be big in order to get an aperture as big as they are. And the, the, the focal lengths that they get. I mean, they're, they can only be so small. Um, but like that 24 to 90 is a pretty good size lens, but you can do an awful lot with it from landscape to portraiture, etc. But the SL2, you know, it just came out. So the SL has been out for a long time. The SL2 came out and they loaded it up with stuff. It's arguably, well, it's probably inarguably the best video camera that like has ever made. Those specs are also in existence on Sony cameras and the the, the Nikon cameras. And, and right now the EOS R5 just came out, which basically annihilates everything. Uh, that, that Canon EOS R5 is going to do 8K in body. Uh, I know it's been reported that it's going to be prone to overheating, 
but you can do 4K, 120 frames a second. So imagine 4K with that super buttery slow-mo stuff. You're going to see a lot more slow-mo in YouTube videos coming up. Just be forewarned because everybody that's a Canon ambassador is going to be trying to be Peter McKinnon. There's going to be an awful lot of new mini Peter McKinnons out there when they get their hands on an R5. Now, the R5 is... It's going to be almost, I don't know, I think it's $4,000 for the body. The SL2 is almost $6,000 for the body. But the R5 is going to be outdated by Canon in a year, easily. I'm sure there will be an R5S or, or something like that coming out. I know that the Nikon cameras uh, are going to have uh, an S body. They're reporting coming out. So there's going to be a Z6 and a Z7S. And they haven't even, they were just announced like two years ago. They've been on the market a year and a half or whatever. I imagine that the ISL2 is going to sit around for a good long time. Leica has a tendency to keep their models on the shelves and offer firmware improvements instead. So they're a lower volume seller. They're not selling more cameras. They're just giving the camera owners that they have more features. And I think they're relying on you to, you know, they make all their money up front. Let's just say they're selling you a very expensive camera and they're selling you some very expensive lenses right off the bat. So you're going to end up with uh, a bigger outlay of cash in the beginning. So just for giggles, uh, you put together a, a shopping cart that includes the 24 to 90 and the SL2. You're looking at 11,000 bucks at least, maybe 12,000 bucks. Uh, when you think about shipping and tax and all that. Um, but is it worth it? Well, it might be. Um, if you purchase that camera now and you put eleven, twelve thousand $12,000 on the table and you own that camera and that lens, you can do, at least I could do, 95% of my shots with that. And that paired with my Q2 would be an incredible two-camera setup. That would be quite a bag. You could be easily be a professional wedding photographer with that setup, for instance. Uh, in terms of my landscape photography and in terms of... Uh, the, the portraits and people photography that I like to do, I would have everything that I need with that two camera setup. And I would be perfectly happy with that camera setup for at least five years. I know it because almost 50 megapixels is like it. I, I don't need a hundred megapixels. 50 megapixels is such an unbelievable amount of data. I've got a photo hanging on the wall in my office and it's like, you know, five feet wide by three feet tall. And it's just got such unbelievable detail. And it was just a quick handheld shot with my Q2. I mean, 50 megapixels near or near 50 megapixels is one hell of a lot of resolution. So um, I think that that's going to have a great shelf life. And with in-body image stabilization and the ability for them to continually upgrade this camera with firmware updates, which they've already done, I, I think the sky's the limit. And they put enough processing power in there. It's got dual card slots. It's got everything that you're going to need for it to be a very good camera for, for a few years. Now, I know Canon, Nikon, and Sony shooters that they need to get a new body every year, or at least they feel that they need to get a new body every year because those manufacturers are frequently holding back certain features. They could put more features in, but they've got more up, upper scale models or they've got new models coming out. So they might withhold uh, certain capacities so that they can have a brand new feature on a new physical body because uh, they want to sell you another $2,500 body. So um, the classic example of that is probably going to be Canon where they have famously withheld so many video features because they do sell small cinema cameras, the C100, C200, C300, etc. And with those C cameras out there, they withheld a lot of the video power on their um, hybrid cameras, their mirrorless cameras, the, the R cameras, and uh, even their DSLRs um, because they were trying to get you to buy those C cameras. Um, Nikon comes out with the Z system and made an initial splash because they had some higher bit rates and the ability to record photo raw with, but you had to use an external recorder, the Atomos Ninja 5, in order to do that. But Nikon doesn't sell cinema cameras. So then 
they they put this camera out that, that does more stuff than the Canons do. So Canon then had to respond and put more things into the R-series cameras. Sony has always been a little bit more um, free with that, um, although Sony does sell higher-end video cameras as well. So those things are compromised. Leica does not sell consumer cinema cameras, so you're not going to go and buy uh, that. So in terms of video, they kind of threw everything at it. It does arguably everything that it's... Um, sort of technological uh, sister camera, the, the the Panasonic S1 series, which they share the L-mount alliance. If you're not familiar, you can use the lenses from the Panasonic full-frame system with the Leica full-frame system. So SL lenses uh, will work on the Panasonic cameras and the Panasonic uh, lenses will work on the Leica cameras with the L-mount alliance. And so there is some interchangeability there. So you could theoretically buy the Leica SL2 body and you could uh, purchase a $2,500, 24 to 70 uh, f2.8 Panasonic lens, which is a very good lens. Like, don't get me wrong. This is what, um, Matt Day did. He's a, uh, film photographer from Ohio that, uh, has a very well-known film photography YouTube channel that he's transitioning into more digital and other types of photography generally. And he is an exclusive Leica shooter and he just purchased a Leica SL2 to do his professional wedding photography work and his commercial photography work. And then also to film all of his YouTube videos. He sold all of his Canon gear that he had for that. He has shot with a Leica M6 for years and years and years, uh, and he went ahead and purchased a Leica SL2 by selling all of his other stuff, but he didn't have um, the resources, uh, I suppose, to buy SL lenses to put on there, so he bought a couple of Panasonic lenses, and they're very good. They're they're very, very good lenses, so you can save a little bit of money that way. You could buy the SL2 and then spend $2,500 instead of $5,000 on, um, on an SL lens, and you could probably be pretty happy, but... Um, I know that just recently the SL2 had a firmware update and, um, that firmware update, I think the marquee thing that it comes with is a, a pixel shift high definition, uh, function. So instead of taking its usual 47 megapixel images, you can take like a hundred, it, it's four times as much resolution. So it's like 180 some odd uh, megapixels. And I did watch uh, a couple of videos where they showed sort of deep dives into what they got out of that function. And they, it looks pretty interesting. So, um, I did have that on, uh, when I shot micro four thirds, I had, uh, on Olympus cameras, they've got some of those features. So they try to overcome the small sensor and the small resolution with pixel shift. But instead of doing basically like the equivalent of four, they would have like a composite of 16 images or 32 images. It's crazy. You could do handheld with that, um, with high re- handheld high res with the EM1X camera, which I had for a short time, which is a lightning fast, huge camera. Uh, made for wildlife photography and sports. Um, it was not the right camera for me in the long run, but uh, it did have this pretty incredible feature where you could take its 20 megapixel sensor, I think is what it has, or low 20s, and that's micro four thirds, so it's a quarter the size of a full frame sensor, and you could bang out these huge image files <laughs> with it, um, handheld, which is crazy. So, uh, And then you could do a tripod one, which is even more uh, highly resolved, but it had to be uh, mounted, on a, mounted on a tripod and stable. And uh, I did a couple shots like that. I remember with a 300 millimeter F4, which on a uh, micro four thirds camera is a 600 millimeter equivalent. And then I would use a 1.5 X teleconverter or 1.4 X. So you're getting an awful lot of reach. You're losing a little bit of light, but then you, you set that up and I took some moon shots with that and they were pretty incredible. I mean, you're, you're only going to get so good in low light with a micro four thirds sensor, regardless of how much resolution you're putting in, but it was pretty neat. So Imagining the 47 megapixel full frame sensor of Leica quality with the Leica SL2 with Leica lenses 
on a tripod taking 187 megapixel composite image in camera like that, I can only imagine that it must be mind-blowing. Now, you know, maybe someday if we grow this uh, podcast uh, to, to huge heights, maybe I'll get an opportunity to try cameras that I can't afford to buy, uh, and then I could give you more information, but um, that's way down the road. So I've not seen this feature in person. I have shot with an SL2 a few frames uh, and had a quick opportunity to try one out right after they came out. Uh, I don't know. It must be crazy. It, it looks like um, it would best be done or, or needs to be done on a tripod uh, in this in this feature, but uh, there are some pretty neat. Uh, there's a guy named Math Photographer is his YouTube name, and he's got mega bucks. I don't know what his job is, but he has every like a camera and all the lenses and knocked lenses and he's got he's got all the resources because he's got all the toys so he did a kind of a review showing a, a deep dive into a 47 megapixel file of a fo- of a, a landscape and then uh did the, the the high megapixel count of the same thing so that's kind of a neat feature i think all the other firmware updates that are coming on the sl2 or came in this last firmware batch are oh, there's a lot of you know just some like little menu items and some choices that you could make that are different that users have been asking for which is like is really good at that and then the um the last thing is i know that there were some bug fixes that they did in there and then some adaptability for some new um new equipment that's coming out that that they'll be uh they'll be able to use on on the sl2 now because of that firmware update um so i don't know i guess uh, maybe this is a little bit about the philosophy of spending as much on a like a camera as we do one of the arguments that i hear from people is that you know boy the the specs on the the sheet are not necessarily uh you know blowing you away compared to some other cameras that exist but i can tell you that well at least in my case, uh, now that, you know, I've been shooting with a Q2 for a year now, it's like, I won't, I will not get rid of that camera. Like it is glued to my hand. It's with me every day, all the time. It's, it's my one, uh, probably most prized actual possession that I have. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it's incredible. And it is obviously all those things that we talk about, the emotional response and, and all of that stuff, but, um, it's just a damn good camera. And uh, they already updated it once with an incredible firmware update that I really liked that kind of gives you the, some of the, um, the home menu stuff that you get on the SL2. Like when the SL2 came out, it had this beautiful back screen uh, where you see all your features and you can kind of touch screen everything. And, and it was really neat. They didn't have that before. They just had plain old menus on the Q2. Well, we got the SL2 menu system on the Q2 right after the SL2 came out. And I remember telling my parents, I said, it's like I got a whole new camera for free. Uh, it just did new stuff and did it better. It did what it used to do, but even better. And then uh, the, the user experience was better. So Good for you, Leica. Don't try to force us to buy the Q2S and the Q2.2 and all that stuff. You know, just, you know, we'll pay the money for a really high quality product and incredible lenses that we can use on, on future cameras. Uh, and, and you keep feeding us these great firmware updates and, and keep us involved and respond to your user base the way that you have been and right on. Uh, that's about all for today. That's all I got. Um, I just want to say thank you all so much for listening and for your feedback. Uh, I hope that my uh, calls for interaction with you uh, go go well heard. Uh, I would love to hear from you. So please send me an email at zgbrannigan at gmail.com or visit my website at zacharybrannigan.com. And uh, there is a link in the description of this podcast for you to to get there. So I'd love to hear about your own uh, you know, your own, your own vehicle for, uh, keeping a smile on your face with photography. Um, or if that doesn't apply to you, that's cool too. That's just my personal experience. This is my podcast. I'm sitting in my bedroom, uh, talking into a microphone by myself. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, this is, this is just my personal opinion, my personal experience. So, uh, if you don't share that, that's fine too.
that's about it. So uh, I hope you're all well. I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Uh, love you guys. Thank you so much for listening and for, for the great feedback that you've given me so far. And I'm going to keep plowing ahead with these. Uh, if you don't mind uh, the, the unedited kind of raw text from me this time, uh, also, please feel free to let me know. Uh, you know, I hope that it doesn't ding me for negative reviews because I might have too many, uh, you knows or likes and things like that, but that's just the way that I talk and I'm going to be able to put out more content and I'm going to be able to put out more regular episodes. If I'm able to just speak a little bit more, uh, stream of consciousness this way, I do have notes and I try to prepare for these. I put down some concepts and ideas that I want to talk about. Uh, but being able to just sit in front of the ca- uh, the microphone, sorry, the microphone and just say a few words and not worry so much about editing it, uh, to pieces the following day, just to get it out to you means that I'll be able to do more episodes. So if you're okay with that, and if this episode sounded okay, uh, I'm, I'm ready for constructive feedback. I can handle it. Um, if you, if you prefer it the other way where I, there's a lot more cutting and that that's fine too. Maybe I'll go back to that, uh, and, and be a little bit more deliberate with my episodes. But, uh, if we want to do more regular episodes, this is probably the way it's going to have to be. So, um, I hope that it, uh, it sounded okay, but Either way, good or bad, please let me know. Uh, If you want to leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, that's really going to help those great new uh, podcast uh, reviews that pop up. They really make my day. So it means a lot. It helps the, uh, the podcast get out there, and maybe we can get more guests and people on in the future because we get a little bit more visibility, a little bit more traction with this. So hope you're all well. Love you guys. Talk to you soon.